Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Recently, we have done several uh, articles on mormondiscussionpodcast.org where we've talked about nuanced ways in which to put certain issues either back together, but also kind of making an effort to let the Orthodox believer know why this issue is so messy and, and also to make an attempt to validate the person who's doubting. And lastly, to kind of conclude these articles showing how uh, one can put this back together and in some instances how I've put it back together. And with that, today I want to talk about Joseph Smith and, and his life and, and use the article as the backdrop for this. Uh, the, the, the article's titled A Nuanced View to Joseph Smith's Youth. And here we go. To the Orthodox believer who thinks that outside Joseph Smith's leg surgery, that we know very little, this gets way more complex than that. We actually know a lot more about Joseph's youth and some of his experiences, and we hope that you enjoy this chance to better understand the early life of the prophet Joseph Smith. Most of us know the basic story. Joseph was born in Sharon, Vermont on December 23rd, 1805, two days before Christmas. His parents, Lucy Mack Smith and Joseph Smith Sr., they were the parents of 11 children, and two of those children died soon after birth, but Joseph was the fifth of those 11. We've all likely heard the story of Joseph Smith's leg surgery. Around the age of eight, Joseph contracted what he called typhus fever and an infection settled in the bone of his leg. Several procedures were done by nearby physicians to relieve the pain and swelling, but the infection continued to get worse and amputation seemed like the only recourse. Through the tender mercies of God, the only physician capable of doing the, pr- the procedure that cured young Joseph happened to be residing nearby, a doctor, Nathan Smith, who had been developing a new procedure to treat such bone afflictions, was called upon in his procedure which involved cutting out pieces of the infected bone, saved Joseph Smith's leg and perhaps even his life. In the article, I share several sources where you can read more about the the surgery and the hand of God that was in it. That said, there are many other experiences in the life of young Joseph that we as members discuss very little that likely had a much bigger impact on his life and future role as prophet of this dispensation. Let's go over some of these. Number one, the extreme likelihood that Joseph Smith Sr. and some of his boys were water witchers and knew the craft of using a divining rod. Most readers of church history will pick up on the idea that the Smith boys and their father were often called upon to dig wells. We often never consider the gravity of this in a time long before the use of electronic equipment used to reveal where various compounds and materials are underneath the earth. To dig a well was hard work and took some time. If one were to select the wrong place to dig, days would be wasted and energy spent in vain. Hence, it was crucial to know where that water was. 
those who dug wells in Joseph's day were often hired because of their ability to locate water with the use of a divining rod. We have four witness statements in the historical sources who say that Joseph was taught by his father how to use a divining rod around the age of 11. Oliver Cowdery also appeared to have this gift, and Joseph dictated a revelation to Oliver that discusses Oliver's use of a water-witching rod. It's uh, an official LDS source. I'm not going to read it here, but it's found at history.lds.org, where you can do a search for Oliver Cowdery's gift. Even today, many farmers and well diggers still insist on using such a method to divine where water is located before digging. Number two, that Joseph associated with scryers in Palmyra area and becomes a scryer himself who expands beyond locating water. A scryer is defined as one who uses divination to discover hidden knowledge or a hidden item or perceives future events, especially by means of a crystal ball. Surprisingly, there were several scryers in the Palmyra area. One of those was Lumen Walters. Lumen was born around 1789, perhaps as early as 1818, and certainly by the 1820s, he is residing in Ontario County, New York, just a mere 22 miles away from the Smith family. Multiple witnesses tell of Lumen Walters' treasure digs in an effort to locate buried treasure beneath the earth. It is believed by respected Mormon scholar D. Michael Quinn that Lumen Walters served in a sort of mentor role to Joseph when it came to scrying and treasure digging or searching for buried treasure beneath the earth, and several historical sources speak to this. Joseph associated with other scryers as well, such as Sally Chase, Jack Belcher, Hiram Page, Chauncey Hart, William Stafford, Joshua Stafford, Samuel T. Lawrence, and others. Some of these individuals likely sound familiar, as some of them eventually joined the LDS Church, and some of them played prominent roles in its history. Number three, Joseph gets his first seer stone in 1819, before the first vision. Sally Chase, who we have already mentioned, was also a scryer. She had a green translucent seer stone, and Joseph, in an effort to find and secure a seer stone for himself, asked to use hers. Looking into her green stone, he was able to locate a seer stone 150 miles away, buried near a tree. Going to the place perceived in his mind, in proceeding to dig, Joseph located his first seer stone, a whitish opaque stone, which he used in his early days as a seer, hence the term seer stone. Number four, Joseph gets his second seer stone in 1822, before his first visit from Moroni. Joseph came into possession of his second seer stone by locating it while digging a well with Willard Chase, Sally Chase's brother. Wilford Woodruff says Brigham Young shared with him and others how Joseph located this stone. President Woodruff said, quote, President Young also said that the seer stone which Joseph Smith first obtained, he got in an iron kettle 25 feet underground. He saw it while looking in another seer stone, which a person had. He went right to the spot and dug and found it. Willard Chase, who was also there, tells us, In the year 1822, I was engaged in digging a well. I employed Alvin and Joseph Smith. We discovered a singularly appearing stone. Joseph put it into his hat and then his face into the top of his hat. After obtaining the stone, he began to publish abroad what wonders he could discover by looking into it. I ordered the stone to be returned to me again. He had it in his possession about two years. 
Sometime in 1825 Hiram came to me and wished to borrow the same stone. I told him if he would pledge me his word and honor that I should have it when called for, he might take it. Later in life, Willard also disputes who was the rightful owner of the stone. In the fall of 1826, a friend called upon me and wished to see that stone. On going to Smith's and asking him for the stone, he said, You cannot have it. I told him it belonged to me, repeated to him the promise he made to me at the same time of obtaining the stone, upon which he faced me with a malignant look and said, I don't care who in the devil it belongs to. You shall not have it. As late as 1830, Willard was still making attempts to get the stone back into his possession. It is this stone that is almost certainly the one Joseph used to translate most, if not all, of the Book of Mormon we have today. Number five. Joseph Smith and his brothers became very involved in treasure digging. The Smith family practiced various types of scrying. Water witching, or the location of water using a divining rod, helping friends and neighbors locate lost items by putting a seer stone into a hat and burying one's face into the hat to help locate the lost item. But at some point, the Smiths and others in the neighborhood also are involved in treasure digging or treasure hunting. The practice involved the belief that there were treasures such as Spanish gold that were buried underground. These treasures were often believed to have been protected by guardian spirits and that the spirits moved the treasure if the rituals were not practiced exactly as they were prescribed. Often Joseph was the scryer on these digs, meaning that he was the one telling the group where the treasure was buried. He did this by placing his seer stone in a hat and burying his face into the hat to exclude all light. We have several historical accounts of those involved in these treasure digs in Palmyra, reporting that as they were digging for the treasure, Joseph would tell them the treasure was slipping further into the earth. These rituals at times include the drawing of magic circles, likely animal sacrifices, including dogs, as well as the interaction with guardian spirits. We have accounts of those involved saying that Joseph remarked that there were spirits protecting the treasure, and one account even describes the guardian spirit as a throat-slit Spaniard. Emma Smith's cousin, Heel, and Joseph Lewis reported the following, quote, He said that by a dream he was informed that such a place in a certain hill in an iron box were some gold plates with curious engravings, which he must get and translate and write a book, that the plates were to be kept concealed from every human being for a certain time, some two or three years, that he went to the place and dug till he came to the stone that covered the box, when he was knocked down, that he again attempted to remove the stone and was again knocked down. This attempt was made the third time, and the third time he was knocked down. Then he exclaimed, Why can't I get it? Or words to that effect. And when he saw a man standing over the spot, which to him appeared like a Spaniard, having a long beard coming down over his breast to about here, Smith putting his hand to the pit of his stomach, with the ghost's throat cut from ear to ear, and the blood streaming down. Who told him that he could not get it alone, that another person whom he, Smith, would know at first sight must come with him, and then he could get it? And when Smith saw Miss Emma Hale, he knew that she was the person, and that after they were married, she went with him to near the place, and stood with her back toward him, while he dug up the box, which he rolled up in his frock. And so there's a lot going on here, and I don't want the the 
the, the reader or listener who's just jumping into this kind of stuff to go too far with this, there's, there's a lot of things going on. There's obviously a connection here of the Moroni story and the gold plates in the Hill Camorra, and also this idea of a throat slit Spaniard who is protecting the, the plates as if they're a treasure. This could be the conflating of two stories. Um, that's certainly possible as, uh, as Emma's family would have been prone to, to think negatively of Joseph. And it's very likely that stories can get mixed up in an effort to, to see Joseph in a negative light. And so as you read this, just recognize that this may be two entirely different stories, but it also certainly should be taken uh, somewhat at face value in terms of the stories that Joseph is telling these folks about what's going on with him trying to either get a Spanish treasure as well as get the gold plates uh, in the Hill Camorra. Number six, there were several treasure dig sites, including the hill Joseph called Camorra, where the plates were eventually revealed. While Joseph tried to downplay his treasure digging activities, even going so far as to say when asked about Joseph's activities, quote, was not Joseph Smith a money digger? Yes, but it was never a very profitable job for him as he only got $14 a month for it. Now that's Joseph Smith speaking in the third person and this idea that Joseph is, is acknowledging, yeah, I was a money digger and, uh, but I just, you know, it didn't last long. I only got $14 a month for it. It just wasn't a very profitable job. Joseph seems uncomfortable talking much about this part of his youth but the depth and breadth of his being involved is much more than a few small endeavors. Dan Vogel, a respected scholar of Mormon history, has written a detailed article detailing what we know about the various treasure digging sites. It appears that there may be approximately 18 dig sites, give or take. And in the article, I've included a photo which names each of these, tells you what was going on, where they were at, what kind of treasure they were digging for, and the date that these occurred. At least one of these digs appears to have taken place on the hill called Camorra by Joseph in 1825. You see, even in the midst of Moroni's visits with Joseph and setting up him getting those plates, Joseph is digging on the hill Camorra for a buried treasure. Is it the plates? We don't know. We just know he's digging on the hill Camorra in between Moroni's visits. And these digs were extensive. I mean, we think we're just digging like a six-foot hole looking for something. But there are photos of some of these sites, and it's almost as if they dug out a cave in the earth. I mean, it is a a gigantic uh, endeavor. And so these digs were not just little things, but days upon days on end. Number seven, Joseph was to take someone with him to retrieve the plates, and that person was not originally Emma. When Moroni spoke to Joseph, he informed him that he would need to bring someone with him to the Hill Camorra to retrieve the plates. Moroni even told him who that person was. It was Joseph's older brother, Alvin. The problem, though, is that Alvin dies before the date arrives. Moroni again visits with Joseph and informs him that since Alvin has died, he needs to bring someone else with him. Joseph understood that person to be Palmyra scryer Samuel T. Lawrence. But soon after, Joseph changes his mind or is informed by Moroni that the actual right person to bring is Emma Hale. And so it should be noted here that Alvin was the first person Joseph was to bring. Moroni is telling Joseph to bring Alvin, and then Alvin dies, which leads us to recognize that that Moroni doesn't know that Alvin is going to pass. 
and is not privy to that information, which which maybe raises some theological questions about how much God knows whether something will happen or not happen, and or whether He tells His angels what will happen and not happen. But the but the point of of this number seven is just to gather that that Emma wasn't Joseph or Moroni's first choice to bring, that originally it was Alvin. And then Joseph moved on to Palmyra Scryer, Samuel T. Lawrence, and then, just before getting the plates, realizes or is told that it is Emma Hale. Number eight, many of Palmyra Scryers were working against Joseph to get the plates from him. On the night Joseph got the plates from the hill on September 21st, 1827, Joseph Smith Sr. was sent to spy on Samuel Lawrence's house until dark. Joseph recovers plates with Emma at midnight. Ten to twelve money diggers are working with Willard Chase, who sends for his own conjurer, Samuel Lawrence, to determine where the plates are hidden. Other conjurers, including Sally Chase with her green glass and another diviner brought in from 60 miles away, again, Samuel Lawrence, according to Lucy Mack Smith, tried to locate the plates by the stone. He eludes Chase and Lawrence, and he does so with Joseph moving the plates from the hearth to the cooper's shop in the yard where Joseph Smith Sr. carried on his trade. He buried the box under a floorboard and hid the plates themselves in a pile of flax in the shop loft. That night, Willard Chase and his sister Sally Chase, with her green glass seer stone, came in with their friends to search. They rummaged around outside but did not come in. Lucy learned later that Sally Chase told the men that the plates were in the coopering shop. The next morning, the Smiths found the floor torn up and the box smashed. To their relief, the plates were safely buried in the flax. And this comes from Richard Bushman, a faithful Latter-day Saint scholar, in his book, Rough Stone Rolling. Number nine, while the critics want to paint Joseph as a fraud, Joseph's reputation as a successful scryer is evidence that something more was going on, perhaps. One simply need to ask how Joseph met Emma Hale, for instance. The fact is that Emma lived in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and Joseph residing in Palmyra was almost 300 miles away. The reason these two meet is that Josiah Stoll hires Joseph to head up a treasure dig in Harmony, Pennsylvania. And Joseph stays with the Hales while employed by Stoll. So why does Josiah Stoll travel 300 miles to hire Joseph Smith? Lucy Mack Smith, the prophet's mother, says that Josiah Stoll came all the way from Pennsylvania to see her son, quote, on account of having heard he possessed certain keys by which he could discern things invisible to the natural eye, unquote. So here are a few instances where there seems to be some credibility to Joseph's ability as a seer. Quote, this is from Martin Harris. In the first place, he told me of this stone and proposed to bind it on his eyes and run a race with me in the woods. A few days after this, I was at the house of his father in Manchester, two miles south of Palmyra Village, and was picking my teeth with a pin while sitting on the bars. The pin caught in my teeth and dropped from my fingers into the shavings and straw. I jumped from the bars and looked for it. Joseph in Northrop Suite also did the same. We could not find it. I then took Joseph on surprise and said to him, I said, quote, take your stone. I had never seen it and did not know that he had it with him. He had it in his pocket. He took it and placed it in a hat, the old white hat, and placed his face in his hat. I watched him closely to see that he did not look one side. He reached out his hand beyond me on the right and moved a little stick, and there I saw the pen 
which he picked up and gave to me. I know he did not look out from the hat until after he had picked up the pin. That's from Martin Harris. Another one from Martin Harris. Once Martin found a rock closely resembling the seer stone Joseph sometimes used in place of the interpreters and substituted it without the prophet's knowledge. When the translation resumed, Joseph paused for a long time and then exclaimed, Martin, what is the matter? All is as dark as Egypt. Martin then confessed that he wished to stop the mouths of fools who told him that he, that the prophet memorized sentences and merely repeated them. And then the last little story I wanted to share is from Josiah Stoll. And this was in a court case. Quote, Josiah Stoll sworn, says the prisoner had been at his house something like five months, had been employed by him to work on the farm part of the time, that he pretended to have skill of telling where hidden treasures in the earth were by means of looking through a certain stone, that prisoner had looked for him sometimes, once to tell him about money buried in Bend Mountain in Pennsylvania, and once for gold on Monument Hill, and once for a salt spring, that he positively knew that the prisoner could tell, and did possess the art of seeing those valuable treasures through the medium of said stone, that he found the, and it says here, word is negligible, or illegible, sorry, word is illegible, at Bend and Monument Hill as prisoner represented it, that prisoner had looked through said stone for Deacon Adelton for a mine, did not exactly find it, but got a, and again the word is unfinished, of ore which resembled gold, he thinks, that prisoner had told by means of his stone where a Mr. Bacon had buried money, that he and prisoner had been in search of it, that prisoner had said it was a certain root of a stump, five feet from the surface of the earth. It was in a certain root of a stump, five feet from the surface of the earth, and with it would be found a tail feather, that said stolen prisoner thereupon commenced digging, found a tail feather, but money was gone, that he supposed the money moved down, that prisoner did offer his services, that he never deceived him, that prisoner looked through the stone and described Josiah Stoll's house and outhouse, while at Palmyra at Simpson Stoll's, correctly, that he had told about a painted tree with a man's head painted on it, by means of said stone, that he had been in company with a prisoner digging for gold, and had the most implicit faith in prisoner's skill. And so the gist of this is that Josiah Stoll is relating in the court his testimony, and he is bearing testimony that Joseph has some level of success in in these endeavors. And that specifically when he first meets Joseph, Joseph is a ways off from their, from the Stoll's home, hasn't been there yet, and describes Josiah Stoll's house perfectly. And so on some level, if you want to account, if the critic wants to account for Joseph as a fraud, he has to explain away Joseph having hit while never really finding any, any significant amount of treasure that he does seem to hit on some of the details within these digs. Number 10. Joseph had at least three seer stones during his life and likely had others as well. He got his third known seer stone, a green stone from Jack Belcher in Susquehanna Valley. Uh, this is discovered in the refiner's fire, the making of Mormon cosmology. And in fact, Brigham Young said Joseph had told him and others that, quote, every man who lived on this earth was entitled to a seer stone and should have one, but they are kept from them in consequence of their wickedness and most of those who do find one make evil use of it. That's from Brigham Young's journal, as quoted in Latter-day Millennial Star. Once one knows the history of Joseph's youth, one can see that Joseph's family, 
that they were very involved with the mystical and frontier magic. These ideas and beliefs were full of parallels to Moroni and the gold plates and likely played strongly into Joseph's framework and perspective. Even later, after he had the plates and is translating using the Urim and Thummim, he eventually abandons those divine instruments, instead returning to the seer stone in the hat that he had used comfortably for years. To complete his translation of the Book of Mormon, he likely uses this stone in the hat. We are left to discern where Joseph's frontier magic ends and his prophethood begins. For the faithful, we should see that Joseph's childhood is much more complex than we had been taught. Nonetheless, it plays a huge role in our having the Book of Mormon, as seen by Emma Hale's Smith quote, which I leave with you. Emma Hale said the following, quote, In writing for your father, I frequently wrote day after day, often sitting at the table close by him, he sitting with his face buried in a hat with the stone in it, and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. Brothers and sisters, I bear testimony that Joseph's early life does have substance to it, that we've never been taught before within the church. I bear testimony that we're going to have to better understand Joseph and his youth to better understand his role as a prophet and exactly what is going on there may never be known. But adding this kind of context can better help us understand the prophet Joseph Smith. May God bless you. May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.